My Kitchen is brought to you by My Kitchen Company SA. My Kitchen Company is a Johannesburg-based kitchen, bathroom, furniture and renovation business. They bring you everything in the kitchen sink. Visit them on Twitter at MyKitchenCoSA for more information. Welcome to My Kitchen. My name is Tepan Mudisana. I hold a WACT Level 2 certificate, an Advanced Brandy certificate from the Cape Wine Academy. In 2016, I was awarded the Veritas Young Wine Writer of the Year Award. I've written for many, many publications and edited one or two in my time. I hold an interest in many topics and many things, including construction, if you can imagine. So I hope that you'll be able to pull up a seat, come into my kitchen and enjoy endless hours of not only food and wine, but many of the other delectable topics that keep us engaged. We look forward to hosting you soon. Welcome back to My Kitchen. In this episode, we're going to begin with I'll Bring the Wine, where and I want to talk about food and wine pairing. And then we're going to talk about Make It Pop, where we're going to speak about, per usual, a book, a show, a film, a little bit of pop culture, and this week it's something really special. And finally, the dish, someone or something delectable that's made the world a sweeter place. So shall we begin? We're going to begin with I'll Bring the Wine, where we're going to talk about food and wine pairing. So this is a question that comes up a lot. And I think that in particular, these past few months of lockdown and quarantine all over the world have encouraged people to try to pair their wine with their food at home. And now and again, I've received a couple of messages on social media that have shown me that it's, it's harder than it looks, right? Right, Fritz? So with all good pairings, it has to complement one has to complement the other. So I've been cooking since I was born, basically. <laughs> so my mother had two children after me, um, about a decade after I was born. So I, I learned to cook fairly young because I started helping her. And over the years, I think, you know, my cooking style has developed to copying chefs on TV, to more homely style, to um, the laziest I could do, which is carrot sticks and hummus. But very importantly, I think um, I've always wanted to make sure that everybody had a good time. And professionally, especially lately, I've had one or two experiences that have shown me that it is actually vital to pay your food and wine correctly. Um, so last year, I partnered with the Hassel Girl, and I even learned that different cuts of steak go with different wine. So it is just that deep. And so to begin, I want to take you through what we learned during the Wine Spirits and Education Trust Level 2 about food and wine pairing. So we're going to start with what it feels like to actually taste and evaluate the wine themselves. So according to the Trust, tasting wine rather than simply drinking it increases our appreciation of the wine by allowing us to examine it in detail. Although the process can seem repetitive at first, with practice it becomes a subconscious habit. So what are they saying really? Basically they're saying... That, you know, sometimes you look at somebody and it looks a little bit pretentious when they're sniffing and swirling and maybe squinting their eyes at the glass. But there's serious things that are happening in that process. So the WCT Level 2 systematic approach to tasting wine begins with looking at the appearance. So generally you're looking at the color. So um, it depends on the kind of wine, the color of the wine, whether it's clear, whether there are some obfuscations in the wine. Then the person um, will likely nose the wine. So um, they're looking at the condition of the wine when they nose it. Um, and then um, they also want to be able to pick up different characters and different aromas. 
Then they're going to look at the palate. So that's the exciting part when you actually get to taste it. And this is the important thing. We're going to talk about pairing in just a moment. So you're going to look for sweetness, acidity, tannin, body, finish. And then finally draw your conclusion. So looking at all these factors in balance helps you to decide whether or not this is a good wine, a bad wine, an outstanding wine, a very good wine. Things of that nature. And then you can also determine um, how to pair it and whether or not it should be paired. So something I found very interesting, um, we're going to get to the systematic approach of wine and food. But something that they said about low-risk wine is um, simple, unoaked wines with little residual sugar are unlikely to be made unpleasant by any dishes. However, these kind of wines can change relatively little when partnered with food. The food and wine pairing experiences can be less interesting. And that's why we're having this conversation, because I've been thinking about how things go together in the world. I've been watching a lot of verses on Instagram, and one of the first ones that obviously picked my interest was Alicia Keys versus John Legend. So people were talking about how much of a better pianist Alicia Keys is, for example, and how much of a better songwriter John Legend is. But when you look at the two of them together... The, it came together like a beautiful symphony. Um, and then one that I loved, I loved after that, was Brandy versus Monica. So Brandy's infamous for singing Sitting Up in My Room and other classics. And Monica, I didn't realize she'd been singing since she was 12. And so some of her extraordinary songs include things like Angel of Mine. And it was really funny because before the verses, Diane Warren, the songwriter, actually tweeted that the true winner of the verses would be her. <laughs> and um, I just thought about how um, they seemed to chafe actually throughout the pairing um, because Brandy kept testing Monica's patience and Monica kept putting up with her and in the end as the viewers three hours later we won because the YouTube video is classic I think I'm going to watch it um, probably for time immemorial because Monica is just so patient as Brandy keeps trying to test her patience and uh, Monica just wants to play her songs and get her money and <laughs> leave. Um, and it's quite hilarious to watch the two of them. Um, but it's also quite a magical because they did have a duet together, The Boy Is Mine. And so there's a long story. I don't know what the rights issues are, but it seems as though Monica came off the victor um, in terms of that particular song. And so for the pairing for the evening, it's really comical to see how, you know, I guess, I guess Brandy's trying to assert herself and prove that she's also quite a star which she is her songs are incredible and last week the icon of all icons uh, Miss Patty LaBelle was paired with with Miss Gladys Knight and so as soon as I heard the opening chords for End of the Road I knew they were in for quite a treat so what does this have to do with food and wine the point is one needs the other it's like a hand and a glove and so back to the WSET um, list what they advise is that in addition to understanding the basic taste interactions between food and wine it is important to remember that people have different sensitivities to various flavor and aroma components meaning that on the same level of bitterness for example one can affect um, one person much more strongly than another and this is different from a personal preference some people like strong reactions while others find them unpleasant Pairing should therefore take into account the preferences of the individual as well as the basic interactions between food and wine. So when it comes to primary food and wine taste interactions, you have the sweetness in food. So what they say is that um, it increases the perception of bitterness and acidity and the burning effects of the alcohol in the wine. 
It decreases the perception of the body, the sweetness, and the fruitiness in the wine. And then you have something called umami in the food. And then you have, um, so to break it down, umami is a savory taste and it is distinct from other primary tastes, although it can be difficult to isolate. So in just a second, I'm going to take you through the creation wines, food and wine pairing, where I actually fully understood the food, the umami flavoring. I remember at the time when we were doing the WCT, I was like, umami, what's that? Like, there's no sisutu for umami. So I, I actually had to taste it to understand. And that's why I, I agree with them, that some of these things aren't necessarily about personal preference. They're also just about what you've been exposed to, what your palate's been exposed to. And then when it comes to acidity, um, here's what they say. Some acidity in food is generally a good thing for food and wine pairings. It can bring a very high acid wine into balance and enhance the fruitiness. However, if the level of acidity is low, high levels of acidity in foods can make wine seem flat, flabby and lacking focus. And then you have salt in food. And then you have bitterness in food, chilliness in food. You have to also consider the flavor intensity, acid and fat, sweet and salty. And then you have to apply the basic principles. So something that I like to encourage people, for example, I was speaking about the steak and wine pairing earlier. You know, it's almost counterintuitive to think that um, there are any um, lighter style wines that go with a steak. But when you think about it, something that's nice and high in acid can cut the fat in a steak. So it's not necessarily a bad thing to have a, a high acid wine with your steak. And that's why we spoke earlier about the low-risk wines. But here's something that's a high-risk wine. So they describe the more structural components in the wine and food and the more possible taste interactions there will be. This makes pairing more complicated but also provides more potential for interesting results. Ha 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 ha, brand new Monica. The most problematic wines are those that have high levels of bitterness from oak and skin tannins combined with high levels of acidity and alcohol and complex flavors. However, these wines can undergo the most interesting changes when partnered with food and can reveal flavors that are hard to detect and the wines are consumed on their own. How exciting. So food and wine is a science and um, it's a little science that you can perform in your kitchen. <laughs> so to begin, I want to take you through the creation wines, food and wine pairing. So I was part of something called the Joburg Wine Club, which we've been doing um, for a while now. Um, and it's um, organized by Destinate. But this time, obviously, because of the pandemic, it was done in people from the comfort of everyone's homes. And it was really exciting. We spoke about food and wine and music earlier. And this time, um, it was partnered, they partnered with Kai FM, where they had DJ Ken Zero and Time Music play some music in between all the series food and wine pairings. But the menu that they had was quite exquisite. I've been to creation twice before. The first time I went um, that I can remember was with somebody that I um, really enjoyed their company. And so we did a chocolate and wine pairing, but they had all these interesting chocolates. They had like salt and wine. And, and that's where I understood that they're serious about gastronomy and they also had enormous, fabulous glasses. So they're very serious about tourism um, at creation. If ever you're in Hermanus, it's a must visit if you can find parking. There was also, um, I think, helicopters, it's, it's a must-visit attraction. And then the next time I went, um, my friend and I did a hike at Bouchard Finlayson, where we went to go just down the road, actually. And I'm going to tell you a funny story just now. So we went to go and taste um, wine at Bouchard, and we had a fabulous lunch. But while we were in Hermanus, you know, uh, we thought this is also a must-visit attraction. So we went up to Creation. And, um, you know, they had a wonderful host taking us through the wine and food tasting and subsequently, um, Carolyn Martin was in the house. Um, so Carolyn and her husband, JP, own creation. And they've created quite a, a marvel, really. 
And so Carolyn also showed us the new ice cream that they were creating. And I think that that was one of my first experiences where I realized that she's so hands-on. But this time when we were doing the Joburg um, Wine Club from the comfort of our homes, I really came to understand and enjoy her personality a little bit more. So we started with the creation Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, let me first tell you about the Alchemy Kit. So basically what they have is this gorgeous little pairing kit. Obviously because of the pandemic, you can't actually go to creation. Um, hopefully in the near future, it'll be easier for more of us to visit. But I think that even after the pandemic, this is something I would definitely do with friends at home. Actually, the person that I enjoyed this experience with couldn't believe that you can't just run down to like a Woolies and buy the Alchemy Kit. It is just the cutest thing. They've got these tiny little bottles of wine, which are samples of um, the wines that they have a creation. And then they also have tiny little samples of food that you can pair with the wine. And so throughout the Joburg Wine Club experience, we were tasting the wine and a little bit of music from DJ Ken Zero and some music. And then back to food and wine pairing. And then they had, um, you know, everybody talking about their own personal experiences. Some people who'd been to creation, some people who'd never been. Some people talking about some of the things that I'd highlighted earlier, you know. Some issues with wine that's maybe a bit too tannic for them. And then Carolyn explaining how food can create that alchemy where it balances out that hectic tannin. And um, so I'm going to take you through the pairing, but um, you're going to just, you're going to love it. So they also had a little chart where they had the wine by degrees. So we had, um, suppose we were supposed to be well prepared and we were supposed to refrigerate some of the wine so that it would obviously be at the ideal temperature. So for example, Sauvignon Blanc is on Blanc Semillon supposed to be served at 9 degrees, Vernea at 10 degrees Celsius, and then Chardonnay 10 at um, 12 degrees Celsius. And then also paired with the aroma wheel, where you can evaluate the wine, the taste, the texture, aroma, bouquet, and then what food it could likely go with, um, which is all done for us, <laughs> thanks to the alchemy kit. Um, and so we began um, with pleasure, Sauvignon Blanc. So they describe it as generously aromatic, with intense guava, ripe pineapple, and minerality whiffs. So they paired it with a mild and salt periwinkle shell, pickled tomato, foxenberg, and peppercorn shortbread. So on the Zoom call, it was so cute. One of the girls put the uh, periwinkle shell to her ear, and um, now I've been doing it every now and again to escape to the seaside. The Sauvignon Blanc is quite lovely. It was a crowd favorite. It's very refreshing. Um, some of the, I don't know if some of you have ever seen me doing the Hartenberg home tastings, but I always begin with the Sauvignon Blanc just because of how refreshing. And it is a high acidity wine. And we spoke about acid earlier. And I think sometimes it's cool to have that, um, yeah, that cooling sort of effect on the palate. And then we did the Viennier. Viennier is one of my favorite cultivars. It's um, such a gorgeous aroma. So generally, I get a lot of floral off of it. So they describe these as pure peach and apricot flavors, mingle with exciting minerality, beautifully balanced with tongue tingling acidity. So they suggested that we pair it with spicy soy cashew nuts. Um, and the person who tasted it during the um, Joburg Food and Wine Club, it was the Food and Wine Club this time, the Joburg Wine Club experience, also suggested a, try, a Thai curry. And I think that that's so great because if I was ever to do a takeaway curry, um, definitely Viennier is high on the list. I've actually got a Viennier um, that I've been sitting on for a while, not from Creation, from Flagstone. And I think I've been too shy to just drink it on its own because, as, as I said, it's got that gorgeous um, nose. 
But then now I'm like, actually, I, I think we should do a Thai curry. And then subsequently, we stay, tasted the gorgeous Chardonnay. I had the Chardonnay a couple of weeks ago with friends. Um, and uh, it was a different experience. This time it was a lot more serious, obviously, tasting it in that environment, which they suggested we chill it to 12 degrees. It was a hot spring day in Johannesburg. What we got on the nose was layers of sun-kissed pear and peach that were enhanced by fresh millerati and a hint of piquant vanilla. So they suggested we pair it with paprika, parmesan, poppy seed biscuit, which was a lovely pairing, actually. The poppy seed biscuit, um, I almost wish we had more of it. It was, it was so tasty. Um, but the Chardonnay is actually one of my favorites. I think that if you're going to have, um, again, like a hot spring day in Joburg, you'd want to have it poolside. Then we tasted the Pinot Noir, and it is actually one of the first times I've enjoyed the creation Pinot Noir. I've got to be honest with you. Um, Pinot Noir is one of my favorite grapes. I love a lighter style red wine. As I was saying earlier, you know, when it comes to steak and, and wine pairing, people often want to go for that heavy wine. Not a problem at all. But now and again, it is actually nice, especially with a lighter cut, for you to take um, something that's going to really make it shine, especially with acidity. So they say that uh, the Pinot Noir is intensely fragrant with a melange of red berries, elegant vanilla and a whiff of wood spice. Um, so they suggested that we pair it with goat's cheese, beetroot chips, king oyster mushroom chips, miso pretzel, sesame seeds, zatar and cracker. Um, so that was the kalp um, that I was talking about earlier when I said that I didn't know what umami really was. I, like I remember during WSET we tasted a little bit of like a seaweed and they were like it's umami and I was like mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean what do I know? So I agreed. But this time, um, I really picked it up. So I want to get back to the WCT. So what they said is that umami is a savory taste and it is distinct from um, the other primary taste, although it can be difficult to isolate. It absolutely is. It says whereas sweetness can be illustrated in isolation with sugar, salt and sodium chloride and acidity with a number of acids, umami tends to be present with other tastes. It is absolutely true. So having it um, in the culprit really, um, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to taste. But... When they said, for example, i.e. cooked mushrooms in WCT, I really understood it. And it actually was really delicious with the Pinot Noir. Um, and then we tasted um, the Ciro Grenache. Oh, I want to tell you a little story. So Unkuli from Creation had said that it is the Jimi Hendrix of wine, um, the Pinot Noir. And somebody had <laughs> said that they have a bit of a problem with sulfur when it comes to Cerro Grenache um, which is the next wine that we tasted and I think that if you're looking for something a little bit lighter than Syrah then Pinot Noir is your go-to guy so they called the Cerro Grenache a well-endowed Rowan style blend with intense flavors of ripe plum black pepper tapenade and umami that is that umami that I was telling you guys about so they paired it with licorice powder dakar and licorice puff pastry sticks so someone suggested pairing it with things like oxtail, which is perfect when you're at home. And I think so. I think that the Serra is that nice full-bodied red wine. Definitely, back to the steak example, a great steak wine. And then we tasted the Creation Grenache Noir Viognier Rosé. I love rosé. I actually would pair um, something like this with one of the lighter cuts of steak. I do. I actually believe that that would be a beautiful pairing. So they said it's a rewardingly aromatic wine with sun-ripe peach and apricot mingling with a tintillating hint of cranberry and a trace of sandalwood. So they gave us a gorgeous rose water and cardamom spray with Turkish delight. I have it with me here and um, I keep spraying it 
because the rose water is just so gorgeous and Joash, my friend was saying that this is something that he should actually make for the home because it actually smells like Turkish delight so I can imagine coming home after a long day of work walking through the front door and smelling this gorgeous rose water it's like it's like walking into a Turkish delight box just gorgeous so I totally loved this um, creation alchemy kit pairing menu it is something that I definitely want to do again probably several times just because it was also so much fun to unpack the kids at home and I think that that's been one of the best things about the pandemic that it's encouraged us to be at home to play with our food and wine at home and if you have any questions please always feel free to pop me an email tweet instagram all the things and let's talk about food and wine so thinking about all this great food and wine made me think about dessert wine and how challenging it can be sometimes and the good folks at Boschendal kindly sent me the Vindior Noble Late Harvest. So they call it a delectable natural sweet wine. And I do I did truly enjoy it. This wine I would pair with something from the southern states. Um, so I love um, fried chicken and waffles. That is um, my guilty pleasure. And although it's not a dessert, I think that again, if you're dealing with a wine that's nice, got a nice high acidity, it can cut through all that fat in all the chicken, fried chicken. And it can also go so beautifully with the sweetness of the waffles and then a dollop of ice cream. So it's the best of all three worlds. And so the Bachendal um, Vindior Noble Late Harvest, um, it is a gorgeous wine that's been recently released. Um, it's been released by Bachendal and they say as pioneers on South African wine. There is no doubt that Vindior would be a perfect addition to the heritage range. So Bachendal Cellemaster Jacques Fouillon released this wine, which is alongside the globally acclaimed Grand Syrah and Black Angus from Bachendal. Um, and this wine in particular, so it's been termed liquid gold because it's naturally sweet and it requires a touch of fate to bring a signature fresh citrus to the front. So the forces of vine and nature must come together in such a way that the grapes reach an exceptionally high concentration level through slow evaporation. And this yields a pour of citrus aromas, especially tangerine, hints of tropical fruit, and deli- delicate notes of honeysuckle. On the palate, the wine boasts a tremendous fruit core, an explosion of kumquat, what a fun word, and lots of concentration and good balance. So winemaker Michael Langenhoven says the wine does not leave you with a clawing sweetness, but finishes off with a fresh citrus zest. With equal parts of Viognier and Riesling, we do everything in our, fla- in our favour to create the elegance of Vindior, and all the elements must align. But I think that this makes each sip a cherished opportunity, a captured moment of providence. Um, last year, we had the opportunity to be part of the global launch of the Boschendal de Nicholas. Um, the Nicholas honours one of Boschendal's founding pioneers. The Nicholas is a blend of 58% Shiraz, 14% Petit Verdot, 10% Cabernet Sauvignon, 8% Malbec, 7% Merlot, 3% Cabernet Franc. With each variety selected for separate, yet the complementary qualities that it brings to the blend. So again, we're talking about blending. We're talking about things that come together perfectly. Here's a listen in on what happened at the global launch last year at the gorgeous, absolutely sexy launch in Johannesburg at Daytona at Mal Resort. With my team, these wines, and I thought about it that it's making wines with heritage in a traditional classic way. 
but with innovation. Most important, staying true, the terroir always respecting the fruit in a combined team effort. And then it wants to, and then it brings it back to making the Nicholas 2016 presenting that to you guys. I'm thinking back to my mentor, Chris Keat, who helped me in the past, and there was three things that I will never forget. The first thing is trying to really understand the vineyards. I don't think you will ever really, really understand the vineyard, but trying to understand it. I remember standing in a cab vineyard once and Chris was trying to explain to me how to taste for a chalky tannin. And a tannin is something that if it's aggressive, you can't remove it. And we were tasting, it was like a light bulb on the first time that I could really taste that chalky tannin and that, that feel that I needed on the palace. The second thing that, that Chris really told me is to have, um, just to have that, that timing, is to be able to have patience and to be able to wait. And I think specifically if I want to take a year like, like now, it's been 19, is not to just keep your fingers on the pulse, just be there in the vineyards, making sure that you're getting that optimal ripeness, that perfect, perfect picking time. All of those things contributes to making a beautiful, beautiful wine at the end of the day. And then the last thing was, is that I always said, yes, Chris, as a young winemaker, you're always looking for these barrels that standing out and it's really, and you want to do this, you want to do that. And I just said, Chris, just really show me how to blend properly. And he said, when you blend, when you taste your wines, you must think of a symphony orchestra. Every single part, every single instrument, really plays a big role. You don't want something that's going to stand out above the rest. Even that little triangle on the back is just adding something extra to the wine. So, Nicholas 2016, this is the one that we're presenting. Um, it's Shiraz-based. Our Shiraz really just gives you that depth into the wine, gives you a beautiful spiciness to the wine. But then, we're having a look at the Cabernet Sauvignon and the Petit Verdot that really gives you nice structure, nice classic structure to the wine. I think of Malbec and Merlot, which also quite a big part of the blend. And the Malbec and the Merlot just really gives you that fruit, color, depth, freshness. It's a really playing an integrate role in the wine. But then there's a 3% Cabernet Franc, and that's that little guy standing there in the back with that triangle, just bring back, back that perfume and the spice. I really hope you guys will enjoy it. I think um, it's a beautiful wine. It's really awesome. It's got a chalky tap to it. It's got some beautiful, beautiful fruit. Nice longevity. And I'm really excited to share this with you guys. Enjoy the rest of the evening. And Welcome back to In My Kitchen. So as we're speaking about the Boschendal Noble-led Harvest Vendior, I wanted to pair it with something just as sweet. So it's a love story. It's called An American Marriage, written by Tari Jones. It was selected for Oprah's Book Club in 2018. So what a perfect pairing indeed. So Tari Jones is the author of four novels, including Silver Sparrow, The Untelling, Leaving Atlanta, and of course, An American Marriage. She holds degrees from Spelman, Arizona State University, the University of Iowa. Um, Oprah called this book, she said, it's among Tari's many gifts that she can touch us to soul to soul with her words. The book is essentially about newlyweds Celestial and Roy, who are the embodiment of both the American dream and the New South. So he's a young exec, she's an artist on the rise, and as they settle into the routine of their new life together, 
They ripped apart by circumstances neither could have imagined. Roy is arrested and sentenced to 12 years for a crime Celestial knows he didn't commit. Though fiercely independent, Celestial finds herself bereft and unmoored, taking comfort in Andre, her childhood friend and the best man at their wedding. As Roy's time in prison passes, she struggles to hold on to the love that has been her centre. When his conviction is suddenly overturned, he returns to Atlanta, ready to resume their life together. It is an incredibly profound love story, um, and it grips you right from the beginning. So one of the things I love is obviously the character's name, Celestial. How delicious. Another thing I love is the little love stories in between. And so I'll begin with the first one on page 41. So obviously she writes to him in prison and she says, Dear Roy, I'm writing this letter sitting at the kitchen table. I'm alone in a way that's more than the fact that I am the only person living within these walls. Up until now, I thought I knew what was and what wasn't possible. Maybe that's what innocence is, having no way to predict the pain of the future. When something happens that eclipses the imaginable, it changes a person. It's like the difference between a raw egg and a scrambled egg. It's the same thing, but it's not the same at all. That's the best way I can put it. I look in the mirror and I know it's me, but I can't quite recognize myself. Sometimes it's exhausting for me to simply walk into the house. I try and calm myself, remember that I've lived alone before. Sleeping by myself didn't kill me then and it will not kill me now. But this is what loss has taught me of love. Our house isn't simply empty. Our home has been emptied. Love makes a place in your life. It makes a place for itself in your bed. Invisibly, it makes a place in your body. Rerouting all your blood vessels. Throbbing right alongside your heart. When it's gone, nothing is whole again. Before I met you, I was not lonely. But now I'm so lonely, I talk to the walls and sense the ceiling. They said that you can't receive mail for at least a month. Still, I write to you every night. Yours, Celestial. So it's a bit of a heavy story, but also light. And I don't mean light and that the story is light. I think that she has such a light touch. She's a very elegant writer. Um... The book was published by One World Publications in 2018. Um, It is truly an extraordinary work. Um, It's so gorgeous. And little experts of the book, for example, on page 64, um, she speaks about a prize that she's won that she now can't share with him because he's in prison. Um, And it's quite devastating. She, obviously, as an artist, has created these dolls. Um... And when she was interviewed, she didn't tell them that she created the doll after him in prison. And so she says, they asked about the inspiration and I talked about my mother being a baby maid and I spoke about Angela Davis and the prison industrial complex. What is happening with you is so personal that I didn't want to see it in a newspaper. I know you'll understand what I mean. And then on page 65, Roy writes back to her, he says, Dear Georgia, a few months ago you said you were dream adjacent but it looks like you've been living your real dream behind my back. So I guess, you know, even if you haven't been in a relationship with someone in prison, I think if you've ever been in a long-distance relationship without me, (coughs) you can relate to living a life that is adjacent to the dream that you have with your partner. Um, Not even in a relationship. I think if if you're far from home, from your parents, from your friends, you're living a life that's separate from them and you want to share parts of that life with them, but it almost feels like a betrayal. Um... And obviously throughout this book she writes so beautifully. Um, It's, you know, even the way he calls her Celestial, it's romantic and it's lovely, although it's her name. 
page 86 he writes another letter and he says there is hope do not give up um so that's the lawyer robert banks and he's telling um roy not to give up um and then a funny thing happens um when roy's in prison he discovers his birth father walter's in the prison and he didn't know that his birth father um, knew all about him because he abandoned him as a baby and it turns out that he becomes his father in another way in prison he protects him um and it's quite devastating because then Roy wants to fire Mr. Banks, the lawyer that um, Celestial and her family have hired, um, because he wants to stop seeing Celestial. Um, and then they write a series of letters to one another, obviously, because she wants to see him again. It's truly a gorgeous book, An American Marriage by Tahari Jones, um, deserving of every accolade, but more than anything, deserving of your time and attention. I think I read it in a breath. I don't actually remember reading it, but I remember it staying with me. Um, it is an absolutely exquisite book. Um, I hope um, that when you do finally read it, that you'll talk to me and you'll talk to Tahari um, and it'll change your life. So that was An American Marriage. And that was the end of I'll Bring the Wine. Listen up for the next two segments. Welcome back to my kitchen, for which I'm going to open the Friesen North Grenache Shiraz Mervid 2017 from Stellenbosch and the reason I have this great pleasure and delight is because I'm about to introduce you to our segment Make It Pop in which we speak about a book, a show, a film, pop of pop culture so there was nothing more fitting for me than the film The September Issue which I decided to re-watch obviously and the reason it made sense cheers <laughs> it's not because it is the first Monday in May, but it's September is about to come to an end. And so one of my favorite um, moments in the film is when one of the editors says, September is the January in fashion. And I agree. And I think that, um, you know, we've come to a, a point in this year when we do need a refreshing, a renewal. Um, and Anna Wintour begins the film by saying there's something about fashion that makes people very nervous. And she's described as the high priestess, the pope, the director of this world of fashion. And um, obviously by the side of the pope is Andrea Leontelli. He says that his role is to help Anna Wintour decide what goes into the magazine to help the editors to have a dialogue about fashion. Um, I found it um, like a paradox of the Dior fashion form, which is full of flowers and lights and about a new designer making his way um but i also kind of felt like what 13 years later it's still a very fresh film there's still so much about it that is very interesting um i think in particular i'm just gonna split my mantra i think in particular you know you've got this whole new breed of content creators you can learn a lot about the world of magazines although magazines are very quickly shuttering um one of the things that i enjoyed was the production meetings in which they sit and they not only discuss the uh, collections, but how they're going to reflect the collections in the magazines. And sometimes I think that, um, I remember my time in magazines, I think that some of that is some of the most reflective, creative work that you can do. And it's so productive. Um, and that's also really interesting, seeing a young Edward Enenform as a young um, editor in the form, because now, of course, he's this super um, editor, the first black male to edit um, British Vogue. Um, so it's really entertaining when Anna Winter says to him, please, let's lift it. <laughs> I think that's something I'm going to be irritating people with for a couple of months to come. Please, let's lift it. 
Um, so there's a very entertaining scene between Edward Ennenfall and uh, Grace Coddington, the famed um, stylist, where he um, comes back from a meeting with Anna and he goes, oh, I'm going to kill myself. And he's staring at the clothes rail um, after coming back to show her um, his color blocking idea. And Grace says, um, you've got to be tougher. And Edward says, tell me what you do. And he's sipping his Starbucks, looking really stressed. And then Grace says, you have to demand because otherwise you'll be blamed. Don't be too nice. <laughs> Even to me. No, honestly, because you'll lose. And so I think that's also another important lesson, you know, no matter what industry you're in. Um, I think it's so important to learn how to assert yourself. It's something that I'm still learning every day, really. <laughs> so I even had to giggle after saying I want to assert myself. That's how serious I am about it. Anyway, so in a monologue, Grace then says, you have to learn the way to beat your way through, to make yourself felt and to make yourself necessary and to find a way that works for you for Vogue. Because a lot of people have come and a lot of people have gone. They just couldn't take the heartbreak, you know. You have to be fairly tough to withstand that. So then what I realized is that September issue is almost like a pairing between Grace Coddington and Annie Winter. So they both started off at American Vogue at about the same time, but they had very different histories. They came from very different places. And then it's also an interesting, I guess, um, if you look at all the tertiary characters, you know, your Andrew Riachalis, your Edward Innerfalls, looking at all the editors that Greg is speaking about that have fallen either along the wayside or become very rich characters in the world as we know it now um so one of the um well i guess the production manager or the managing editors is when we put up the september issue the first thing reporters usually ask us is how much does it weigh and how many pages is it one in every 10 american women almost 13 million people will get that issue and it's so interesting you know all these years later obviously vogue is digitized and i'm, I'm pretty sure it's monetized in very different ways but even working in magazines previously I can tell you how devastating it is, you know, the magazines have either gotten very thin or they've just disappeared. And so it's incredible to have come from that time where there was just such authorities that you wouldn't understand what, how to put on your eyeshadow or how to pair your colors or how to color block if you didn't have a certain issue of a magazine. Um, and so he says to them, I want you to go into it like it's Vogue the brand and market it like it's never been marketed in 120 years. And that also speaks to me about its longevity. The brand has outlived the magazine. And that's something I think um, another lesson that we can all learn in our respective businesses, whether or not you work in media, that you don't actually want to be so married to the idea of we've got to make this thick magazine because when consumers stop buying that publication, you're in trouble. And so this is the piece that I love. So the editor says, September is the January in fashion. This is when I change. This is when I say, this is the new me. This is when I try to get back into the high heels because that's the look. That's the point. Everybody wants to wear the heels. Everybody wants to do whatever the magazine says because it's this authority. And the head of that authority is obviously the editor. And I went to deciding from her lofty tower up high in New York City what the rest of the world is going to wear. So it's very Devil Wears Prada, very Cerulean, very... You know, whatever lumpy sweater you've picked up is decided by the very people in this room. And so Grace warns us that there's usually one big disaster in the September issue um, because there's many, many shoots going on. Um, and so it turns out that that's the cover issue, but that's hmm, a later story. So then they describe this again as pairing. So we're pairing um, this inscrutable... Anna Wintour and then this like free-spirited Grace with her 
red hair and her big spirit and her um, extraordinary eye. So Anna Wintour's dad was a Fleet Street editor. And so they um, pull from an interview in which he says um, some very hectic things that I'm afraid to say because I'll lose my signal. <laughs> but anyway, so it just it reminds you that um, he was obviously a huge influence on her life. And she even says, I think my father decided for me that I should work in fashion. I can't remember what form I had to fill out. I think it was an admissions thing. At the bottom it said career aspirations. And he said, all right, that you want to be editor of Vogue. That was it. It was decided. And so there's this passage of time from her youth in the 60s in London to how she influences the career of young designers like uh, Takoon in the 2000s. And then um, one of the editors even says it's so difficult to be a designer in the country. So they created a fashion fund to draw attention to new talent to find and develop it. And they even say the fashion business isn't fair. They do everything right and they still crash. So you, then you see you know, just how powerful she is that she can, she can create careers she can create industries she can grow careers she can grow industries and how tough I suppose that that can be um, as the editor she's editing the whole fashion world not just Vogue and that's in contrast with Grace who grew up in North Wales she read Vogue as a teenager she had to order it um, and sometimes her copy would arrive a couple of months later so you know everybody was trying to be the heels in style and then three months later I suppose she would see that okay heels are in style um, and so she says it was entire. I like the sort of chic thing, which is entirely out of context with the lifestyle that she led. So she won the young section of Vogue model contest. She started modeling for Vogue. She went to London. She became a full-time model. She was even shot by Lord Snowden in 1959. Unfortunately, she was in a car crash. Her eye went into a mirror and then she had to stop modeling. But fortunately, after surgery, she was able to go back to work and was offered a position as a junior editor at British Vogue. Slowly worked her way up. And now I guess she's at the top. She's at the pinnacle. So, you know, you've got these editors singing her praises, saying that she's without question one of the greatest living stylists, um, that no one can take, can take, make a photographer take better photos, romantic pictures. They even say she comes from this idea that fashion is the world of play and make-believe. And so she creates these beautiful imaginary worlds, you know, in the magazine, in the film, you can see she's creating sets out of the 1920s, even the color blocking shoot that was a disaster, she puts together in a very fun way. Um, then her and Anna are in Oscar de la Renta's studio, and I think she's quite devastated after some of her um, ideas were cut out and some of the hard work she did was cut out. Um, um, and so there's a joke where um, Oscar de la Renta needs to edit his collection down from 150 pieces down to 65. And so Grace sort of teases that, no, you know, you should ask Anna. <laughs> She's very good at editing. So you can kind of see how between the two of them, they they do battle, you know, almost constantly. Um, and so it's quite entertaining because when... Grace then goes to Paris and you kind of think of this humble life of this girl who grew up in North Wales and looking at her in the studio of, you know, Oscar de la Renta and these um, imaginary worlds she's able to build. It's quite beautiful, really. So she says, I never meant to be a model and I never dreamt to be a fashion editor, but I just love the pages and the pictures. In my early years as a fashion editor, I worked with Norman Parkinson, who was a really big photographer and he taught me to always keep your eyes open, you know, Never go to sleep in the car. Keep watching. Because whatever you see, out the window or wherever, it can inspire you. 
absolutely gorgeous and then she goes to Versailles and then she jokes that she thinks she got left behind somewhere because she's still sort of romantic and then she says but you have to go charging ahead you can't stay behind and so um, I thought that that was quite interesting because she's been heralded as this you know um, hero of the old world of fashion and yet she's the one that's saying you know fashion is about now it's about moving forward and then there's the contrast of Tony Good. Um, who's shooting with Mario Testino and Sienna Miller in Paris. Um, and Tony even says, Anna was forward-thinking to consider the influence of celebrity and how these actresses embraced fashion because they grew up wanting to be models. And then it's sort of jokingly, Grace force-feeds, no, it's not force-feed, she feeds the model's pie. Um, and the model, Raquel, is afraid to eat the pie because the corsets are too tight. And as a guilty pleasure, it's kind of cute to see Raquel sneaking pie after they get the shot. So there's still that dreamlike, childlike state that sort of surrounds her in almost every way. It's like butterflies. It's gorgeous. And then back in New York, Andre Leontelli says, uh, Miss Winter inaugurated me into health. Naturally, what Miss Winter says goes. So I took out tennis. I had to get up and approach life with my own aesthetics about style. So I can't wait to review his memoir, by the way, in my Piaget watch. That's something I'd love to do. And so then there's this huge storm because Grace sort of um, anticipated that there'd be some anxiety in the September issue because uh, Mario sends the pictures from Rome and Anna laments saying, you know, I thought I'd get more clothes. And I think, you know, then there's this contrast between her daughter and then the documentary filmmakers and everybody going, oh, it's just clothes. But um, it's really interesting because Anna Wintour obviously is able to look at her own life and say, I think my brothers and sisters are very amused at what I do. I mean, because they're political editors, they're helping to fight for um, housing for low-income households. But to be fair, you know, I think that's something we haven't really registered and something we need to respect her for is that she did help to develop industries out of wearable arts. So it's not mere clothes. Um, even this film or those filmmakers wouldn't have happened if there wasn't something to make a movie about and then you can sort of see the stress that she's under and I suppose it should be a different stress now considering what's happened to the world of print publishing but then so she says that you know when her dad retired she asked him why he was leaving and he's because he was still very passionate and he said I get too angry so she (laughs) you know with this um, sort of glint in her eye she says so I think I find myself getting really really angry might be time to stop but then I think that you do see the respect that Grace has for her because they did start working at American Vogue on almost the same day so Grace says Anna saw the whole celebrity thing coming way before everybody else got on that bandwagon whilst I hated her I have to admit she was right you know you can't stay behind you have to go charging ahead and she did and the magazine's very successful because of it And whilst I wouldn't care if I never saw another celebrity, obviously if the magazine doesn't sell, I don't have a job. So it would be silly. You've got to have something to put your work in. Otherwise, it's not valid. And that's probably one of the most important lines in the film that I think, um, again, you know, we keep talking about the world of content creation. We speak about these mediums, you know, your platforms like Instagram and Facebook. And I'm very much an analog girl. If it was up to me, I would still, you know... behave like it was 2007 but the world is changing and I think that it's very very stressful realizing that your worth does have to be validated by having a medium um it's very scary scary stuff and so 
Grace decides to put the documentary um, filmmakers into vogue. So she shoots them and one of them has a little bit of a pot belly and she says, personally, it's better that you're not skinny skinny. You're really people, not models. Personally, it's enough that the models are perfect. And then it's quite interesting, I guess, this paradox of this gorgeous skinny blonde model looking into the eye of the lens of this documentary filmmaker and how that's been immortalized in the September issue of Vogue Forever. And um, so Anna says, fashion's not about looking back. It's always about looking forward. And so she praises Grace and she says, I mean, Grace is a genius. There's no one that can visualize a picture or understand the direction of fashion or produce a great shoot. I mean, she's just remarkable. She and I don't always agree, but I think that over the years, she and I have learned to deal with each other's different points of view. And um, so that's why I think that the movies out or the diff documentaries ultimately they're pairing. I think that it's about sisterhood and friendship as much as it's about um, fashion. Um, and I think that that's why I decided to pair it with a wine that is a blend of three different grapes, Grenache, Shiraz, Mourvedre. Um, very, very um, distinctive grapes, but together they come together just beautifully. Um, so I got a little bit of coca, white pepper, obviously from the Shiraz, um, the aroma, it's absolutely sensational. So the film, The September Issue, was made by RJ Cutler. Um, uh, so apparently the book, the Vogue magazine that year in September 2007, weighed in at a record 840 pages. And I think that it does actually highlight a lot. He released the film in 2009. Uh, it's an hour and a half long, uh, worth watching. 11 years later, there's so much still to learn. And in the famous words of Anna Winter, so what else? Thank you so much for staying with me. And now we focus on the dish. In the dish, we highlight someone or something delectable that's made the world a sweeter place. This week, I'd like to um, shine a little bit of a spotlight on Journey's End. And the reason I'd like to do that is because Journey's End has launched their foundation. Cheers to Journey's End. Cheers. So the foundation tackles hunger and extreme poverty in the Haldeberg region of Stellenbosch, largely as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Round of applause. Beautiful work. So Journey's End Vineyards has launched the Journey's End Foundation. It is the latest community project from Stellenbosch-based winery. It was set up as an NGO where Rola Gab, the MD, and his team have established the foundation to tackle hunger and extreme poverty in the Haldeberg region of Stellenbosch, largely as a result of COVID-19. The foundation has set up a network of soup kitchens in the Haldeberg region and has initially committed to providing 8,000 meals a week with a target of achieving 10,000 meals a week by the end of October 2020. So in the situation that we're in, that I guess um, the world needs some light. The world needs light. The world needs beauty. And it's been a pleasure and a privilege to not only bring you the wine, make it pop, bring you the dish. Thank you for coming to my kitchen. I look forward to you joining me again soon. I love you so much.